Father, thank you for all of the work that you have done in order to ensure that we would be right with you. Whereas the song says that we would be set free, not just from sin and its power, but set free from all sorts of different ways that we can find ourselves being condemning of ourselves. I pray that now as we go to your word, you would preach clearly through your all too imperfect servant to the people you've gathered here tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated, folks. Thanks for taking the time to be here tonight at Epiphany. After many, many months, it seems like, at least a couple months, we are getting back into Revelation, looking at, uh, well, things that have gotten weird and things that are getting weird uh, in this book. And it does really start to get pretty uh, strange tonight, not that it hasn't been before. But um, before we get into it, before I read the text, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, have you ever been in a stage play, maybe been at a concert, and been able to look behind the curtain? Have you ever been able to see what it looks like backstage? I would imagine in some way all of us maybe have had an experience like that to some degree or another. I mean, especially with those of you who are involved in music or theater or whatnot, I know we've got a, a number of folks that are connected to that world where it's just inevitable you're going to see behind the curtain for some reason or another. But of course, there's like a symbolic meaning to this phrase too, to look behind the curtain. And, you know, there's, there's, you can go behind the scenes of something and see what's really going on. I do that in all sorts of ways in life on any given day, usually through listening to podcasts. So I'm, I've become a, a bit of a podcast addict or junkie, to be honest. I mean, it's just, I've always got headphones in and I'm always listening to something. And sometimes I listen to, like, behind-the-scenes shows about, you know, bands that I like, like, you know, The Who or Led Zeppelin or whoever, because I want to hear, you know, what their story was like beyond the stage. Uh, or maybe I'll listen to the behind-the-scenes uh, about a politician that I'm interested in or about, you know, how a bill might get passed. I mean, that stuff kind of fascinates me. Uh, recently, Pete Townsend, the founding guitarist of The Who, and really, for all intents and purposes, the founding member of The Who, uh, was interviewed in The Rolling Stone. And he gave a behind-the-scenes look at something that, frankly, I didn't really want to hear him say. Uh, he said, quote, about um, of his two now-deceased, very legendary fellow bandmates, John Enthwistle, the bassist, and Keith Moon, the drummer, who, for my money, is one of the greatest rock drummers ever, maybe the greatest rock drummer ever. I mean, he was sort of the guy that I tried to emulate when I was learning how to play drums. But this is what he said about them. He said, quote, it's not going to make the Who fans very happy, but thank God they're gone because they're difficult to play with. They never ever managed to create bands for themselves. I think my musical discipline, my musical efficiency as a rhythm player is what held the band together, end quote. Now you hear that and you're like, ugh, man, I don't know if I want to go that behind the scenes. I didn't want to know your feelings about your bandmates that way. I wanted to imagine that like, you kind of at least liked each other a little bit, but no, not so much. But there's
there's also a behind-the-scenes view of things, a behind-the-curtain view of things that can really be insightful and really be helpful and really be encouraging to us. And um, tonight, we're going to get a behind-the-scenes view, basically, of what history looks like. We're going to get a behind-the-scenes view of, well, basically, we're going to get heaven's perspective on what's actually happening here on planet Earth from beginning to end. So with that being said, let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 12. The passage will be on the screen for you to follow along with. It reads like this. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Remember, the, uh, John the writer is seeing these visions. And he says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That equals three and a half years. And in scripture, this time period is mentioned as sort of a, well, a place of safekeeping. More on that in a little bit. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. <clears throat> Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That saying again is referring to three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
and he stood on the sand of the sea. End of reading. <coughs> Crystal clear, eh? Not weird at all. As you can tell by the reading of that passage, this is a passage loaded, loaded with symbolism and imagery. A lot of it is from the Old Testament, and I'll do my best to try and break down what these different symbols mean so that we can make sense of some of it. But, but to, to do that, I want to contrast what things look like sort of from our perspective in history and what they look like from heaven's perspective. All right, so first, in this story, where we see a woman giving birth, heaven sees the incarnation of God. You know, again, verse 1, you go back, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant, crying out birth pains. She's going to give birth. Verse 5 goes on to say she gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, I don't know if you remember from our psalm tonight, Psalm 2, but that's a messianic psalm. And one of the predictions in there is that God will raise up a ruler one day that will rule the nations with a, quote, rod of iron. This was a clear allusion to that, and it's why we believe that the, the woman giving birth here is not some ordinary woman, but a woman that is described as being clothed with the sun and having the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Who, who is a woman that fits that description? Well, at first glance, since the terminology used to describe her baby is clearly talking about Jesus, the Messiah, we assume that this mother must be Mary. But from the surrounding context, this mother isn't simply Mary. To really understand the woman personified here, we have to go back really even to the first woman who we're told in Genesis chapter 3 will one day have offspring come from her that will one day crush the head of Satan, who John confirms here is this character of the dragon. All of those who follow on her side here are represented by this woman. This woman sort of personifies all those who would follow in her lead. Thus, the 12 stars on her crown represent not only the number of Israel's tribes, there were 12 of them, but also the number of the church's apostles. 12 is a very significant symbolic number. And yet, so that's heaven's perspective, that through the woman there will be a Messiah that comes. But from the world's perspective, when the Messiah did come, well, nothing seemed all that spectacular. He was born in the way that everybody else is born. He wasn't dropped in a cloud from heaven. He was born with all the regular issues that a woman who is giving birth would face. And maybe even a little bit more, a little bit more harsh, being that it happened in a stable, a manger. Nothing, nothing upon looking at the birth of the Messiah looks particularly special. And yet the way it's pictured here 
is this cosmic battle. God is coming into the world and there's a dragon with seven heads coming after her. That's the way God works in the world. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, he works in the most hidden of ways. You remember in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, and he's talking about feeding them and clothing them and giving them uh, shelter and visiting those who are sick and in prison. God is hidden in the most, well, in the stuff that we never assume. That's right. So where we see just a woman giving birth, God sees the incarnation of himself. Secondly, where we see basically corrupt politicians and tyrants, heaven sees the work of, of the devil. Look at verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them to the earth. This is language depicting the devil's rebellion where he is able to lead a third of all the angelic hosts in rebellion against God. And as a result, they go to war. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. From the perspective of heaven, Satan, the dragon, is going to do everything he can to try and ensure that this messianic child to be born is going to be killed before anything can be accomplished by him to save the world from its sins. But from a purely earthly perspective, what's most likely being described is the actions of a cruel political tyrant named Taryn. If you remember, if you're familiar at all, in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, soon after Herod finds out that this king of the Jews is born in Bethlehem, he has all the boys under two years old slaughtered there in hopes that he devour his potential rival. What's the application for you? Why does this matter for us? Well, in just this, I, I think, in the rulings and in the fiats of this world by political leaders and tyrants, we have to recognize that there really is a larger spiritual battle taking place all around us. We're so prone to thinking that if we fight back physically or get the, quote, right politicians in office that will will win the battle, that will be victorious. But the problems go way, way, way deeper than that because they are ultimately spiritual in nature. Thus Peter, in one of his letters, reminds us that, that the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, just like this dragon did in this text here. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, to therefore take up the whole armor of God, which is the gospel of our salvation, because we don't merely fight against flesh and blood. But he says we fight against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, there's a spiritual war going on all the time around us. There is a dragon seeking to devour 
So we don't fight those who might harm us with swords, but with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We don't defend ourselves against the enemy's attacks with mere helmet and breastplate, but with the helmet of our salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. That's the idea. Moving on, where we see a wilderness, heaven sees our preservation. Verse 6 says the woman fled into a wilderness when she was being pursued by the dragon for a time of three and a half years. That's not a literal number. It's not really meant to be taken literally. In Daniel's writing, it suggests, and really throughout Scripture, it's a, it's a period of time in which, in which people are able to get uh, away. It's a period of relief or maybe a period of intensity because tribulation is referred to as a period of intensity. But it doesn't have to be necessarily taken as literal. If you skip on down to verse 13, it describes this pursuit of the dragon. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings of the great eagles, just symbolic language. She was able to flee quickly that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Now there are multiple pictures of the wilderness in Scripture, of course. Usually, the wilderness is associated with desolation and desperation. It's not somewhere that you want to go to take a little vacate from life. Indeed, if you think back to the Israelites wandering around as nomads for 40 years in the wilderness, you think of the infant Jesus having to flee to Egypt for a time until Herod's persecution of him was over. The wilderness isn't where you want to be. From a purely earthly perspective, it feels like the worst place you could be. But from heaven's perspective, in this scene, it's the only place you'd want to be. Because there is found God's people's preservation. Now listen, I'm, I'm not saying go and look for hardship. Don't hear that. I'm not saying, yeah, go out to the wilderness places, man, and suffer. But I am saying that sometimes, oftentimes, it's in these wilderness-type places that you don't want to be, that God has somehow placed you in, that just might be the best thing for you, even if you can't see it. Uh, recently, I started going back to my own personal wilderness, known as the gym. What that means is that most mornings I've been getting up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, grabbing a cup of coffee, and driving into the vast, dark wilderness to retro fitness. Nothing about this place is appealing to me at all. I'm just being real with you. Nothing. No things. I mean, all the gym equipment looks challenging and hard. I hate the color scheme in there. It's all red and yellow in this joint. I especially hate anything that makes my heart have to work. I don't like cardio at all. You talk about my ultimate wilderness experience. Get me on a treadmill for more than two minutes, and I'm right there. I can't stand it. But each morning, I'm heading out to this place of hardship because I know afterwards, every single time, I feel better. 
more energized. And in the long run, it will literally be my preservation. Like it will actually help me live longer if I do this stuff. If I head out into the challenge. I don't, I don't know what the wilderness places are for you. I don't know where the places are that you feel like you get stuck and you don't want to be there, but be open to the reality that God is working there too, maybe even for your good, for your preservation. <clears throat> maybe for some of you, just the idea of moving here from wherever you came from looked like a wilderness to you. But over time, maybe you've come to see it as God's means of preserving you. I have friends right now battling various forms of cancer. I hate it. I hate it so much. <clears throat> Nothing about the process of beating this disease is appealing. There's no easy way. <clears throat> but it is through the wilderness of chemotherapy and other experimental drugs that my friends may be preserved. So where we just see a wilderness where they go, why would, why would I be driven out here? God knows. It's our preservation. And lastly, what we learn from this passage, where we see the power of the dragon, the power of the enemy, heaven sees an already defeated foe. Listen to the great scene described for us again in verse 7. I'm just going to read a little bit again because I want you to hear the drama of it. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael, this archangel character, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The Old Testament gives an allusion to this scene in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel, and it suggests that, that at some point, we don't...